After weeks of fighting, Sudan is in a dire situation, and it's unlike anything many there have seen before. There were a lot of wars here in Sudan. Sudan is full of conflict and war, but seeing it in Khartoum is really different. For Sunday, April 30th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. Sarah McCammon in Washington, D.C. This hour, 30 years ago this week, the Internet was born. We'll meet its creator. The web really is an abstract idea of a universal space for all information. But what does he make of disinformation? And season two of Yellow Jackets is out. Actress Christina Ricci on what it's like to return to the hit series. I personally felt really intimidated at the idea of coming back. All that's coming up, but first the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The warring sides in the ongoing Sudan conflict have agreed to extend a ceasefire for three more days. But despite the initial truce, fighting continues to be reported on the ground. And as Kate Bartlett reports, the extension comes as evacuations of foreign nationals continue. Paramilitary group the Rapid Support Forces announced the extended truce on Sunday before the current ceasefire was due to expire at midnight. The Sudanese army said they had also agreed to prolong the ceasefire, noting it came after U.S. and Saudi mediation, news agencies reported. Meanwhile, a U.S. State Department spokesperson said a second convoy carrying American civilians had arrived at Port Sudan on the Red Sea, where they will be assisted in traveling onwards to Saudi Arabia. For NPR News, I'm Kate Bartlett in Johannesburg. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is in Jerusalem, where he will address the Israeli parliament tomorrow. This comes at a time of frosty relations between President Biden and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. NPR's Daniel Estrin has more from Jerusalem. Speaker McCarthy traveled with a bipartisan delegation. He's the latest prominent Republican figure to visit Jerusalem. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis visited last week and met Prime Minister Netanyahu. It comes at a delicate time politically between the U.S. and Israel. President Biden recently criticized Netanyahu's efforts to overhaul Israel's Supreme Court and said he would not be inviting Netanyahu to the White House anytime soon. McCarthy's planned address to Israel's parliament carries echoes of a past diplomatic controversy. In 2015, Netanyahu was invited by Republican Speaker of the House John Boehner to address Congress, where he railed against then-President Obama's policies toward Iran. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Jerusalem. House Majority Leader Steve Scalise is urging President Biden to negotiate with Speaker Kevin McCarthy over the narrowly passed House debt ceiling bill that would raise the ceiling while reducing federal government spending on domestic programs and reversing some of Biden's policies. And Pierre Scott Detrow has more. The White House says, look, the U.S. needs to pay its bills. These are things the U.S. already took money out, already decided to spend money on. They need to pay the bills. House Republicans are trying to use this leverage at this moment to force some spending cuts and also try to force Biden to undo some of his big policy achievements of the last couple of years. And Biden has said absolutely no. NPR Scott Detrow reporting. But that bill, which would raise the country's debt ceiling by $1.5 trillion, is said to be dead on arrival in the Democratic-led Senate. The U.S. hit its debt ceiling in January, but Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has been using cash on hand and extraordinary measures to keep the country's bills paid. She says those measures, though, will run out sometime next month. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. 
Lawrence police are investigating a shooting that killed one person and injured five others at a house party early this morning. Lawrence City Councilor Gregory Del Rosario represents the neighborhood. He has friends that live on that street. But yeah, I mean, it's concerning on a Sunday morning, anything that's that kind of event going on in the city that affect all of us. Law enforcement says the shooting does not appear to be a random attack. One of the largest banks in Massachusetts could be sold by uh, federal regulators today. The stock of First Republic Bank plummeted last week when the bank disclosed that customers had withdrawn more than half of its deposits. First Republic has branches in Boston, Cambridge and Wellesley. It's the state's largest bank in terms of deposits. Federal regulators want to have the troubled bank sold before financial markets open tomorrow. The National Weather Service is warning of heavy rain late today and into the night that could cause street flooding where there's poor drainage. The Steamship Authority is warning gusty winds could cause it to cancel ferry service between the Cape and Nantucket. And National Grid is monitoring for possible outages from strong wind gusts on Nantucket and in other parts of the state. In sports, the Red Sox over at soggy Fenway Park this afternoon defeated Cleveland by a score of 7-1. to one. And it's win or go home for the Bruins tonight. It's Game 7 against the Florida Panthers in a series that Boston once led three games to one. The puck drops at the TD Garden at about 6.30 this evening. And again, in the forecast, rain could be some heavy downpours and maybe some thunderstorms overnight with temperatures in the 50s, a cloudy start, and then clearing. Temperatures will climb to the mid-60s tomorrow, and then mostly cloudy and once again a chance of showers, upper 50s on Tuesday. Right now, in Boston, it is 52 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. House Republicans passed a bill this past week aiming to bring President Joe Biden to the table to negotiate the debt ceiling. The White House, meanwhile, has characterized this attempt as hostage-taking. So as the government gets closer and closer to a default on its obligations, we wanted to outline the possible economic ramifications if the ceiling is not lifted. And for that, we have Darian Woods from NPR's daily economics podcast, The Indicator from Planet Money, Welcome, Darian. Hi there. Well, I'd like to start by reminding listeners exactly what a debt ceiling default means. So the government borrows money every year. It hasn't run a balanced budget since the 1990s. Now, this is not unusual internationally, but what is unusual internationally is this cap on Treasury borrowing, even for spending that's already approved. So the government is in this situation where it has the authority to spend the money on programs that it's approved, things like Medicare and Social Security. But without new legislation, the government won't have the authority to raise that money with new debt. That means the government simply won't pay for things that it's committed to pay for. Okay, so we're currently at the debt limit. The government seems to be functioning for now. 
Why is that? Yeah, so since January, the Treasury has been doing these extraordinary measures. These are things like temporarily pulling back on contributions to federal employees' retirement accounts. What happens once those extraordinary measures are exhausted? If the debt ceiling still isn't resolved by the time that the government runs out of funds for its normal operations, which people are estimating might be around June or July, the Treasury will be put in this very tough place where it will likely have to stop or trim payments on other bills that the government has, things like Medicare, the Defence Department and Social Security. But I'm guessing that there would be other ripple effects more broadly throughout the economy too. What would that look like? So even if the U.S. government keeps paying its bonds back, keeps paying that interest on its debt, but it stops some of its normal spending, that would mean the U.S. would get a ratings downgrade. Fed Chair Jerome Powell has spent years thinking about the debt ceiling issue, and he said to Congress in early March that raising the debt ceiling was the only way out of this trouble. And if we fail to do so, I think that the consequences are are hard to estimate, but they could be extraordinarily adverse and could do longstanding harm. It'd be harder to borrow, both for the U.S. and everyday people. It'd be bad. So, Darian, if the government were to run out of those extraordinary measures and beyond, if it can't stop spending and runs out of money anyway, what options does the government have? There's been this fear of the government defaulting on its actual loans. And... That would be so catastrophic economically that it's hard to imagine. U.S. Treasury bonds are sort of unique in that they're this ultra-safe asset that can be traded easily all over the world. And so companies and governments hold U.S. Treasuries almost as these kind of interest-bearing substitutes for cash. And so there'd be a cascade of ripple effects in the U.S. and internationally if that key assumption about the safety of Treasuries proved false. Banks would likely stop lending as much. Economic growth would wilt. And everyday people in the U.S. would also find their borrowing costs soaring. And so, for example, the interest rate on mortgages is often related to the going rate for 10-year treasuries. How likely is any of this to happen? That particular scenario around debt not being repaid is unlikely to happen, both for legal reasons and because the treasury would be doing everything it could to avoid it. But given the brinkmanship happening in Congress, markets are sending concerning signals. The interest rate on three-month Treasury bills is noticeably elevated at the moment, and that is a sign that markets are worried that politicians might not come to an elegant solution over summer. That was Darian Woods. He's the co-host of The Indicator from Planet Money. Darian Woods, thanks so much for your insight. Thanks a lot. The U.S. State Department says another U.S.-organized convoy of U.S. citizens and others trying to leave the violence in Sudan has arrived in Port Sudan today. And earlier today, a U.S. official told NPR that it's possible another convoy will depart the country's capital, Khartoum, on Monday. For weeks, the North African nation has witnessed intense fighting between the Sudanese army and a paramilitary group known as Rapid Support Forces, leaving at least 500 people dead and thousands more injured, according to Sudan's health ministry. The situation is dire, despite a delicate ceasefire that's been in place as civilians evacuate. To get a sense of what life is like on the ground in Sudan and what aid efforts are currently underway, we called Ahmed Omer. He is with the Norwegian Refugee Council, which is among the groups still providing assistance in Sudan. He spoke to us from a city a few hours outside of Khartoum and which has witnessed the arrival of people fleeing the violence. When we spoke, he told us that the conflict is unlike anything he's seen before, and he worries for his family 
many of whom live in the conflict zone. My family is stuck there in Khartoum North, uh, where they, they don't have drinking water for about two weeks, for the last two weeks, because a water station was hit in the early days of the violence. They're there without water. Sometimes my brother gets to get out and bring some water from a well. There is a well. It's very rare, by the way, to find a well, a well of water, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in a hospital. So they bring some water from there from time to time. And yes, it's enough for them to drink, maybe. But what about other things you do with water? So life there, yeah, they are surviving, but it's not, it's not what can I say, humanitarian. You must be very worried about them. I am very worried. There were a lot of wars here in Sudan. Sudan is full of conflict and war. Uh, but seeing it in Khartoum is really different because Khartoum is a really big city. You know, Khartoum holds like 8 million residents in a country that has 45 million residents. 8 million of them is in the city of Khartoum. Mm-hmm. And some of some of people even come and go because they, the neighboring villages, you know, so you can say 10 million. And what is your situation there? I mean, do you have refugee camps set up? Are there places for people to stay? Uh, for Madani, uh, they are gathering sites. Uh, the fleeing people who fled Khartoum, uh, it was a very huge number. We don't know exactly the number. It's very huge. But we're talking about thousands of people. They were sheltered in, or they are sheltered right now, in schools and students' hostels, you know, public facilities right now. And most of these gathering sites, we counted about 18 gathering sites. Uh, these 18 gathering sites... Most of them, like 70% of them, you can say, are served by the local community. They're providing the resources that people need to get by in the short term? Yes, local volunteers are preparing the food, they're preparing, you know, everything. Uh, they bring some medicines, you know, just volunteers of the city of Med- Wad Madani. This, this is not sustainable. This will not uh, stay for long because the city itself is uh, is in a crisis right now in economical crisis, market crisis, fuel crisis. There is no there is no fuel in Wad Madani. If you find if you find fuel there, you will find it in black market at around fifty thousand Sudanese pounds. And this is around like you are talking about eighty five dollars for a gallon. So this is putting a strain even on communities that are not near the violence. Most of the bottle things, you know, these canned items comes from Khartoum. And now Khartoum is in a war. So a lot of items are disappearing. A lot of items are skyrocketing in prices. And it's chaotic there. Uh, They have new arrivals the whole day. The whole day there are new arrivals coming from Khartoum. So it's really concerning. Ahmed, what kinds of stories are you hearing from people who are coming there, who are fleeing Khartoum? I hear a lot of stories, but maybe some of the things that uh, I still remember when they say, I don't know what to do, or I, I'm, I don't know about my future. I don't know what to do. I don't know where I'm, I, w- I will go. These things are really heartbreaking for me from the stories I, I hear there in, in Wad Madani. Because normally as a human being, when you get uh, something bad happens in your life, you, you know what we will do after it, but they don't know. They're shocked because their life is changed just suddenly in the most catastrophic way. How are they getting there? I mean, who is actually able to get there and who is not? Some people are not able to leave. For example, my family, 
my family they're actually most of it uh, like they're scared to scared from the road because the road is very dangerous we hear that most of the people who got killed in this conflict are killed during their road to survival what's at stake if this fighting continues there's a ceasefire right now right as we're talking but if it doesn't hold what's at stake it always doesn't hold since you know it's like the fifth ceasefire but uh, i do urge the two parties to to hold at least uh, this ceasefire or you know any <laughs> any three days of these ceasefires are needed because we are talking here about people who have no water for two weeks they really need like one day so they can get some engineers and take them to the station the water station and fix it so we really need every day i hope they stop fighting i hope they do bigger truces like one week two weeks truce i hope they negotiate i hope this all stops it has to stop it has to stop because people need access to basic things like food drinking water fuel hospitals medicines there are people who are caught there who has asthma and they need their asthma inhaler who are people who caught there who are who have diabetes and they need their their medicines this is like the 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 things about war maybe people don't see that people are blind about the small things about the war that there is an area that having seen water since two weeks there is someone who has an asthma attack and he doesn't have his inhaler these small stories are the real war that's ahmed omar with the norwegian refugee council joining us from outside the sudanese capital stay safe and we wish you and your family all the best thank you sarah you're listening to all things considered from npr news Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Native Plant Trust. Enjoy 21 species of trillium in bloom, plus online programs May 8th to 14th at Garden in the Woods in Framingham. Information at nativeplanttrust.org. And Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at zevin.com. Lend us your ears anywhere with the new WBUR app. Tap and listen when and how you want. Download or update in your app store now. In the forecast, rain could be heavy at times tonight with some thunderstorms possible, temperatures holding in the 50s. Tomorrow, we'll have heavy downpours again overnight and cloudy start. And then tomorrow, clearing out mid-60s. Right now, 52 degrees in Boston. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. The State Department says a second U.S. government-organized convoy has arrived in Port Sudan today with American citizens on board. Those eligible will travel from there to Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, by boat. In a multinational effort, the State Department says around 1,000 U.S. citizens have been evacuated from the country where rival military factions are fighting. 
Philippine President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. will be in Washington tomorrow for a four-day visit. He'll meet with President Biden, where the two leaders are expected to share concerns about China and discuss business ties. And at the weekend box office, the Super Mario Brothers movie stayed in the top spot with an estimated $40 million. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the University at Buffalo, working with the National Science Foundation to address a shortage of speech-language pathologists through artificial intelligence. More at buffalo.edu NPR. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org and from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. When I ran for president four years ago, I said we're in a battle for the soul of America, and we still are. The thing we all knew was going to happen finally happened. This is not a time to be complacent. That's why I'm running for re-election. On Tuesday, in the video announcing his re-election bid, President Joe Biden didn't mention Donald Trump by name. Trump is still considered the GOP frontrunner. But he took aim at MAGA extremists and how their actions threaten American freedoms. Dictating what health care decisions women can make. Banning books and telling people who they can love. All while making it more difficult for you to be able to vote. Another thing he didn't mention, his age. At 80, Biden is already the oldest president in U.S. history. If he wins re-election, he will be 86 at the end of his second term, nearly nine years older than Ronald Reagan was when he left the White House. It's an issue of concern to a big chunk of the voting public. And when we looked at closely this weekend on the podcast, consider this. When you look at polling, when you uh, watch focus groups, it's the thing that people bring up first. Political commentator David Axelrod spoke with NPR this week. He said Biden will have to face the age discussion head on, and it will be a delicate balance. He's going to have to talk about it, and he's going to have to talk about the obvious you know, risks involved with that, but also the upside of it, and that the upside are wisdom, the upside is experience, the upside is perspective. Some Democrats had hoped a younger candidate might emerge, and maybe that person would be Vice President Kamala Harris. But Harris has faced doubts from within her own party. On the NPR Politics podcast, correspondent Mara Liason raised a pivotal question with host Susan Davis. The question for me about Kamala Harris, which is so interesting, is, you know, he's the oldest incumbent ever to run for re-election. He's 80 years old. And the question I have is, would he have run again if he was confident Harris could win? It's a great no question. No Democrat I've talked to is confident that she could win on her own this year. And Biden believes strongly that he's the only person who can beat Donald Trump because he's done it before. And it shows that he's not sure if Harris is quite ready to be his heir apparent. Biden has announced his bid for a second term at a time when his approval rating hovers somewhere in the low 40s. A recent survey from NBC News had 70 percent of Americans saying he should not seek a second term. Scott Detrow is a White House correspondent for NPR. 
a lot of Biden's presidency was was based on this bet that he could get Americans to pay attention to government again. He could get Americans to feel like government is working for them again. I asked him how Biden is hoping to sell another four years to American voters. It's interesting. Almost all of his focus this year, the third year of his presidency, is trying to bring attention to things that he passed in the first year or so of his presidency over and over again, day in, day out. He is doing campaign events focused on the enormous Infrastructure Act that passed at the end of his first year in office. He talks a lot about other measures that that will bring more manufacturing back to the U.S., These are big deals. They rightly are things that he should be focused on. But it's interesting to me that right now his intention isn't about passing more pieces of legislation, expanding his record, but trying to get voters to realize and pay attention to the things that he has already passed. Right. And two years ago, I mean, people have short memories. A lot's happened since then. How big of a challenge is it for him to to get those ideas front and center with voters now? It's an enormous challenge. So he has passed these monumental pieces of legislation that I think really will, over the next 20 or 30 years, reshape big chunks of the country. There's going to be a big shift to electric vehicles. There is going to be an increase in manufacturing, broadband Internet. I sound like a Joe Biden campaign commercial right there, but here's the part that wouldn't be in the commercial. This is going to take a lot of time to do. It's going to be complicated. It's going to be relatively slow moving. And these are big, complicated ideas that just don't stick in voters' minds. They're hard to get down to a 30-second TV commercial, let alone uh, whatever length of, of time that the ads that we'll see on social media are. You just mentioned some things with a 20, 30-year timeline. Yeah. What policies, if any, have made an impact in the short term? Are there things he can point to that, that he can say to American voters, this is helping you right now? Yeah, I, I think one thing that you hear him talk a lot about is the caps they put on insulin medication for people on Medicaid. And, and now you've seen that uh, private companies are kind of willingly going along with this uh, and, and lowering insulin prices as well. That's something that has enormous impact to millions and millions of people. That's something that he's going to be talking about a lot. But it's interesting. You go back to that that initially Recovery Act, the first uh, bill. That, that, that he signed into law and some of the immediate payouts to Americans and big tax breaks to Americans at the height of the pandemic, those were all but forgotten. Uh, poll after poll showed that most Americans didn't even realize they got them. If they did, they didn't credit Joe Biden. You know, and it, if you can't get people to feel like the government is helping them when the government is literally giving them money, I think that that, that gets to the broader question of breaking through in this in this partisan moment. Beyond this bigger messaging challenge, where do you think Biden has fallen flat? I mean, where do you see him struggling to make change? Are there issues that are particularly hard for him to connect with voters on right now? Yeah, I think inflation has been a problem for a long time, right? Inflation is slowing down right now, but its uh, prices are starting to stabilize at the increased price that, that, that they went up to. It's not like prices are going back to where they were a few years ago. So things cost more for more Americans. Inflation has been a really big problem for a couple of years now. And the White House was really slow to recognize that. I sat in so many briefings where they really dismissed it, saying this isn't that big of a deal. This is a short-term problem. This is all about the supply chain at the end of the pandemic. Turns out it was a big problem, and the White House was not uh, at the forefront of trying to change it. I mean, I think you you could argue that even if the president had been super aggressive from the first moment, that would have been hard for the White House to contain because there's so many other forces at play. But for good or for bad, we blame the presidents for the problems that happen when they're in office. And I think that's going to continue to be a challenge for him. Now, Scott, it's no surprise that Republican voters are critical of Biden's record. Mm -hmm. But a recent Associated Press poll also found that less than half of Democrats want him to run. Why is he struggling with his own party? I think there's a couple things going on. One is that, you know, he's gotten a compromise gun bill signed into law. That hadn't happened in decades. That is something that's worth pointing out. But it did nowhere near what the uh, what, what so many Democrats want to see happen on, on, on gun control. That's, this has become a prominent issue for the party's base and just kind of 
working along the sidelines, getting something Republicans could agree on, which, again, is very hard to do. And he did it. That didn't satisfy the Democratic base on a lot of fronts. Same things with climate. Joe Biden signed into the law the biggest piece of climate legislation in the history of the country. But it's still nowhere near enough for so many of the activists who have outside voices of the party. So that's part of it. But I think the other thing, and, and polls show this, is that a lot of, of voters, even voters who voted for him and like him, are worried about his age. I think that's going to be a, one of the biggest challenges for him in 2024 is the simple fact that he's already the oldest president in U.S. history. He's 80 years old. He got a recent physical that shows he is a very healthy 80-year-old, but he's 80 years old nevertheless, and he'll be 86 at the end of his second term. And I think that's just something a lot of voters have a hard time getting their heads around. Yeah, and we know those discussions are going to continue. They often make people ask the next question, which is, who's the person backing him up? Yeah. And that is Vice President Kamala Harris. You know, she gets less airtime. What role might Harris play in this re-election campaign? And is she seen as an asset or a liability? That's a great question that I think the White House is still sorting through. I think there's been no question that a lot of Democrats have felt frustrated with how Vice President Harris has, has handled herself the first few years as vice president. It's a hard job to feel like you're doing it well because of the basic definitions of the job, right? I don't think there are many vice presidents in American history who are like, that person is a standout vice president, right? Because by definition, you are number two. You are in the background. You are taking a side seat to the president, even if you're in the meetings with them. Your job is to get out of the way and let the president function. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think people, you know, people who have watched Vice President Harris's career have noticed. And, you know, I was covering her back in California. I covered her presidential campaign. I think there's been a lot of times where she seemed like she's having a hard time figuring out what the exact lane is, what the issue she wants to talk about is, how she wants to talk about that issue, speaking in a way that she wants to, but also making sure at the same time she's in line with with what Biden wants to say and not not getting ahead of him. Sarah, you cover reproductive rights. This is an area where Harris really has taken the lead in the administration's response. And that more than anything else is something that she's gone back to and talked about again and again. And I think especially given the way that it's polling, we can expect her to do a lot of that over the next year and a half. Many of uh, Harris's supporters have pointed out that as a woman of color, she faces a level of scrutiny that that other vice presidents who don't share those characteristics haven't faced. How does that factor in and how does the White House talk about that. That's something that they that they lean into and point out. And and it's true, right? If, if you want to argue that Kamala Harris has been viewed differently than every other vice president, has been treated more critically than every other vice president, well, there are a few things about her that are absolutely different from every other vice president. She's the very first woman to hold this job. She's the first woman of color to hold this job. Those are groundbreaking achievements. But at the same time, they certainly lead to a lot more criticism of her. But I think I would also say this at the same time. When Biden first picked her, as his running mate in 2020, Biden was dropping a lot of hints at that time along the lines of a speech that he gave with her by her side, his side saying, I view myself as a bridge to the next generation of leaders. And there was a lot of thought, does Joe Biden just want to serve one term as president, rid the country of Donald Trump, and then retire and pass things over to his handpicked successor, Kamala Harris? And I do not think the last few years have played out in a way where Kamala Harris has been widely seen as the emerging next Democratic candidate, this unstoppable force in Democratic politics, right? She has had a hard time. And I think she has admitted this. Her staff has certainly admitted this in the conversations, had a hard time finding the exact message, finding the exact tone she wants to take as vice president. And and I think I don't think that was a determining reason as to why Joe Biden ran for another term, but but I think it was certainly one of the many, many, many dynamics he was considering. That was my colleague, White House correspondent Scott Detrow, who also co-hosts the NPR Politics podcast.
Now, the dynamic around Kamala Harris and her role in the administration and the re-election campaign is something we want to take a closer look at. Being vice president is like being declawed, defanged, neutered, ball gagged, and sealed in an abandoned coal mine under two miles of human It is a fate worse than death. That rant is from Selena Meyer, the fictional vice president in HBO's Veep, played by Julia Louis-Dreyfus. But Renee Graham, a columnist at the Boston Globe, agrees with that sentiment. I think that being vice president is an absolutely thankless job. You know, your job always really is to be behind the president. And she says being a first in the role just makes things more difficult for Kamala Harris. She's the first woman. She's the first black person. She's the first Asian American. I mean, there's all these sorts of things. And so you have to deal with, you know, the constraints of the job, but also these really lofty expectations. And I think that there's a way that you can get a little wobbly under all that. You start trying to figure out who you should be and what it is you should be doing. And there's a lot of concern about, you know, what it will mean to have an 82-year-old president and someone who would be 86 if he wins in, in 2024 and at the end of that term, like, is she ready to step into that job? No one knows if they're ready for that job until they have to step into the job. Graham says Harris should get more recognition for the role she played rallying voters across the country on abortion rights during the midterm election, which will be a key component of the re-election campaign. They didn't really give her the credit I thought she deserved, and she was going to college campuses. And in doing that, she was ramping up younger voters, especially young women, and getting them on board and saying, this is huge. If we, you know, lose Congress, then this is only going to continue to get worse. There's going to be that strength of constantly pushing back to what is not just, you know, the threat beyond Roe v. Wade, but what's going to be happening with the abortion pill, that, you know, what's going to happen with contraception, what's going to happen with all of these issues around reproductive rights, around health care, and, and how that also kind of fans out and deals with all the other issues of rights being under threat from the Republicans, whether you're talking about what's happening with trans rights, whether you're talking about book banning, there's a lot that she can work with. And for those who insist on criticizing Kamala Harris, Graham suggests they take a look at the record of former Vice President Mike Pence. Like, what was it Mike Pence was doing for those four years? And I don't remember a lot of people saying, well, is he ready and is he doing and what's Mike Pence up to? And to my recollection, you know, Mike Pence did two things as vice president. He stood behind Donald Trump and agreed with every bad decision that Donald Trump made. And he managed to not get himself hanged on January 6th during the insurrection. Like, that was what Mike Pence did. That was Renee Graham. She's an associate editor and columnist for the Boston Globe. Starting in May, we will be releasing the Weekend Consider This podcast on Sunday instead of Saturday. So look for us in your feed on Sundays and listen wherever you get your podcasts or at NPR.org. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. By the end of the 1980s, the Internet was just starting to make waves. And I just flicked a switch on the modem and... Things are starting to happen. Things are starting to happen. It was revolutionary, but it wasn't all that glamorous. The early Internet was just text. 
It was really hard to use, and it wasn't even accessible to most people. Then, 30 years ago this week, that all changed. Here's NPR's Julian Ring. On April 30th, 1993, something called the World Wide Web launched into the public domain. Interactive appetite, searching for a website, a window to the world, got to get online. Take a spin, now you're in with the techno set, you're going surfing on the internet. The World Wide Web allowed anyone to build a website with pictures, video, and sound. And it was easy to navigate. How do you get to the NPR homepage? You type in www.npr.org, hit return, and you're there. Pretty easy. If the internet enabled computers to talk to each other, then the web defined how we actually use it. And with the web in the public domain, the internet quickly blossomed into a vibrant online canvas, the same one that we use today. The web really is an abstract idea of a universal space for all information. This is the guy who invented the World Wide Web. His name is Tim Berners-Lee, and back in 1993, he worked at a physics lab in Switzerland called CERN. You might know it today for its huge particle accelerators. Here's Berners-Lee on NPR's Fresh Air, talking about one of the web's most game-changing features, something we use every day, the hyperlink. If you're reading an, an article which isn't really what you wanted to know, but it refers to something that is what you wanted to read about, then you can jump to that, you can jump and jump and jump to things more and more relevant until you find exactly what you want. Here's the thing. Berners-Lee could have made a fortune off people clicking on hyperlinks. He had the option to license out the web for profit, but he didn't. He believed that keeping the web as open as possible would help it grow. So the 37-year-old researcher asked his employer for permission to take the World Wide Web and just give it away. No patents, no fees. That was probably what, uh, that I think was what was most important in making it take off. There are now five and a half million Americans connecting to consumer online services. More than 24 million people in the United States and Canada already use the Internet. The total number of websites is doubling every two months. Today, nearly two-thirds of the world's population uses the web to visit hundreds of millions of active pages. The web has revolutionized how we communicate and gather, how we work and learn, but it's also expanded the reach of propaganda and disinformation, and it's completely upended our standards of privacy. Berners-Lee predicted some of these ramifications decades ago. Do users now know when they're getting something which is fair and unbiased? Do they know how to tell the difference between news, op-ed, editorial, and advertising on the web? In an interview with NPR's Talk of the Nation in 2002, he said the web is really a reflection of us. And that's by design. The web pages you see are written by people. You're looking at a certain subset of the churning mass of humanity out there. So it's not that the web is itself an animal, but it's that the society is this, is, is this really exciting, decentralized thing. Mm -hmm. And the web, fortunately, is more or less able to echo it. Julian Ring, NPR News. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for listening. I'm John Carpilio.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Philharmonic Youth Orchestra with Benjamin Zander performing Mahler's Second Symphony with Chorus Pro Musica at Symphony Hall May 3rd, bostonphil.org. A chance of rain tonight. In fact, heavy downpours are possible and maybe a thunderstorm. Temperatures in the 50s overnight. A cloudy start, then clearing out. Temps rise to the mid-60s tomorrow. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Zoo, what makes you happy. Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham. ZooNewEngland.org. Tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR, a closer look at how greater Boston arts institutions, both big and small, weathered the pandemic and where they go next. Listen tomorrow morning on the radio and WBUR app. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. The manhunt for the gunman who allegedly opened fire on his neighbors in southern Texas Friday night, killing a child and five others, continues. The FBI says more, it has more than 200 personnel looking for the 38-year-old suspect and warn people to consider him armed and dangerous. The main unions in France are planning nationwide demonstrations tomorrow to coincide with International Workers' Day. They're protesting an overhaul of pension laws that increases the retirement age from 62 to 64. And a near-record heat wave tore through California this weekend, sending torrents of melted snow gushing down rivers and streams, but feared flooding didn't happen. Yosemite National Park was also reopened today after park officials closed much of it as a precaution. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens developed for gardens and landscapes nationwide. More at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. From Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. Stift is a new podcast series that tells the story of the short-lived Viva magazine. It was started in 1973 by Bob Guccione, the publishing magnate behind Penthouse magazine. Viva was one of the first erotica magazines aimed at women and was in many ways ahead of its time. Poet Nikki Giovanni and feminist writer Betty Friedan contributed pieces to the magazine, and the current editor-in-chief of American Vogue, Anna Wintour, even served as Viva's first fashion editor. So how did a progressive and promising women's magazine fizzle out, and why? Those are the questions at the heart of the Stift podcast, and its host, Jennifer Romolini, is here to talk more about it. Welcome. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So it's a pretty wild story. The head of Penthouse magazine partners with feminists to create a progressive erotica magazine for women in the 1970s. I admit I'd never heard of this before your podcast. At first, how did you even find out about Viva magazine and the larger story to be told about it? So I was working in women's magazines in the aughts. I was an editor at several different Condé Nast magazines. And one of them, Lucky Magazine, I wrote a column called eBay Obsessed, where I wrote about eBay shopping. And I came across an issue of Viva. (laughs) And I 
I immediately was struck by it. It's such a cool looking, it's gorgeously designed, you know. So I I bid on it and I won a first issue of it. It was from 1974. And I was just so surprised by it. It looked like nothing I had ever seen. It was like entering a portal into a different world and a different time. And I really wanted to know everything I could about it. And so I started collecting the issues of the magazine. And once I really got into the story, I I, I was like, how is this going on? There's these full frontal male nudes next to in-depth profiles of people like Maya Angelou along, you know, alongside all of these boundary pushing, very progressive stories about, you know, abortion and politics and desire and work and ambition and It's just such a rich story, and I really wanted to get to the bottom of how it came to be. Was there, like, one thing you saw in that first Viva magazine that you got that made your jaw kind of drop and made you go, oh, my gosh, what is this? They had put together a feminist symposium with, with, you know, the biggest name second wave feminist at the time. Betty Friedan was featured in it. And you turn the page, and next to it is a feature called Crotch Watching, which was just this horrible, hokey, just just like almost like a parody of a female desire. And I just didn't understand how these two things could exist in one magazine because it was so smart on one side and so sort of clumsy on the other. One of the key figures in the podcast and the Viva Enterprise in general is Bob Guccione, the founder of Penthouse Magazine. Tell us about him. Why is he so important to this story? Bob Guccione in 1973 is just off the success of Penthouse Magazine, which was one of the most successful magazine launches of all time and still is to this day. And, you know, he was a caricature in a lot of ways of 70s masculinity. He was, you know, machismo. He thought only he knew best. He's Italian-American, shirts unbuttoned to his navel, gold chain. He's like everything you think of like a disco man, right? But at the same time, he's super progressive and forward-thinking, and he did hire tons of women. Most all of the executives in his company were women at the highest level. He paid them really well. So while he was clumsy and maybe not the best boss in terms of not being very reasonable, we've all had this kind of boss. He's not listening to your opinions. He's not listening to what you know, what you know. He also did give them opportunities. And even the fact that he launched Viva is, you know, was very progressive for the time. So what did you learn about how that juxtaposition you described a moment ago between, you know, the really serious feminist think pieces and, you know, the crotch watch pictures? How did that happen? And how much was Bob Guccione responsible for that sort of, I guess, incongruity within the magazine? Well, the erotica in Viva was always a man's idea of what a woman wanted. He was an artist at heart and he he had wanted to be a classical painter. He, and he's such a fascinating figure to me. He was not a pure villain, which is what I think makes this story really, really compelling. Um, and he wanted to control all of the art in his magazines. So all of the erotica in Viva is through a male lens. So the women were just often like, I, I don't like looking at this. I don't know any woman who likes looking at this, you know? But at the same time, you know, they said, you know, Bob would call you honey, but he'd make you editor in chief. You mentioned you interviewed several of these women, and they're mostly in their 70s now, who were involved in the creation of Viva. What was it like to talk with them after all these years? So a lot of my work has been about women and work and ambition and, you know, professional desire. 
And what I really found, what was so interesting is talking to women in their 70s and 80s, some of the women were in their 80s, what do we remember about our careers? And for them, you know, they remembered the collaboration. They remembered their big successes. They didn't remember the bad stuff so much, you know? I think fulfilling their professional desires was more what this magazine was about than anything about sexual desire, even though that's how people remember it. You know, you mentioned that some of them were uncomfortable talking about their own sexuality, at least at the time that they were working on Viva, and that made creating an erotica magazine uh, challenging at times. What what was the source of their discomfort? Like, was it the society around them or was it something else? I think that the sexual revolution of the 70s, I think we think about it as much more liberating for women than it actually was. You know, there was all this pressure to get hip and get sexy. You know, there was a there was a term that the New York Times coined at the time, porno chic. And there was all these sexual freedoms, but there weren't many sexual protections. And I think that women were just sort of put into this world without really knowing how to navigate it. And there was nobody really telling them how to navigate it. And I also think there's still a lot of shame around sexuality. You know, I would interview women for this podcast and they would tell me stories about, you know, let's say their love lives at the time or how they felt about sex. And then at the end of the interview, they'd say, oh God, could we cut that please? Oh God, I don't want my kids to hear that. You know, we still live in a a society that's very oppressed today, and it was even then. I think the sexual revolution was a very confusing time for women, and it wasn't very revolutionary for women. It might have been for men, but it was not for women. And, of course, you're still releasing episodes. What else can we expect? What's coming out soon is our Anna Wintour episode, because Anna Wintour, fun fact, was a fashion editor at Viva. This was where Anna Wintour really got her start was Viva Magazine, and not many people know that. And it was very interesting to sort of track down the photographers who had worked with her, to talk to the editors who had worked with her, you know, just having this icon, this fashion icon, and looking at where her beginnings were. I I sort of loved that, too. That's Jennifer Romolini. Her podcast, Stift, is out now. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. The critically acclaimed show Yellow Jackets, part psychological thriller, part coming-of-age drama, is back for its second season. The new season brings us even deeper into the story of the Yellow Jackets, a high school girls' soccer team from New Jersey that becomes stranded in the Canadian woods after their plane crashes on the way to a tournament in 1996. We're also getting to see more of the ways the trauma from that event continues to affect the girls 25 years later. Christina Ricci plays the now middle-aged Misty Quigley, who was the team's equipment manager. No, you can't leave. Uh, Thaisa and Natalie aren't even here yet. Misty, they're an hour late, which is actually on time for people who, you know, aren't coming. But I made punch. Well, this is just great. You know, I try to do something nice. Try to help my friend cover up her crime of passion. And what do I get? You know, I have a lot at stake here, too. I know. But we were careful, right? We missed something. I could feel it. You got rid of all of Adam's stuff? Um, yeah. Yes. Of course I did. You hesitated. No, I didn't. And your journals, too? Yes. We answered too fast that time. (sighs) Misty. And she joins us now to tell us more about the show's new season. Christina Ricci, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, no, of course. 
I have to say, though, right off the top, I refuse to be called middle-aged until I'm 50. <laughs> I'm with you right there. <laughs> I think we're about the same age. So, yeah, yeah, we're not there yet. But there's no. nothing wrong with that, right? It's uh, better than the alternative. Um, without giving everything away, the wildly popular first season ended on a cliffhanger. And returning for this new season, you know, did you and others feel pressure to kind of deliver on the expectations of that first season? Yeah. I mean, I personally felt really intimidated um, at the idea of coming back. And she's such a specific character. And I just, it, it just really was sort of um, really intimidating, like I said, to try to come back and, and repeat the performance and live up to expectations. Well, you kind of just alluded to it, but Missy is a pretty complicated character. You know, she's caring and upbeat, but also kind of villainous. What do you see in her? What drew you to playing her? Well, I mean, I love these kinds of characters and I'm, I especially love, you know, you said that she's upbeat and she is someone who is really, really deeply unhappy. And that sort of like refusal to be unhappy um, is her coping mechanism. Um, that, you know, vigilant, everything is okay uh, thing she gives off is really a reaction to how deeply unhappy she is. And that to me is so fun. It's so fun to play characters that really handle things in a different way than you normally see. And it's real too. I mean, some of the quote unquote happiest, nicest people I know are actually just refusing to feel the pain they're in. Hmm. How much of that is down to who she sort of intrinsically is and how much is a result of the trauma that she's been through? Well, I think, you know, when the series begins, we do see that she is an unhappy person. I mean, there's just something about her that's lacking. In the pilot episode, we see her as young Misty, um, sort of just like blankly watching an animal die when not saving it from, you know, it's drowning in the pool. And uh, I think that really is meant to indicate that there's something lacking inside of her. And then we see that she is constantly rejected, um, a real outsider. People just shun her. And uh, I think that even without what happens uh, with the plane crash, I think she would would be an unhappy person all her life. Because that's just one of these perennial questions, isn't it? I mean, how much are people a product of what happens to them? And how? why do some people overcome and other people don't? And, you know, I just think it's a fascinating question. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that the experience with the plane crash really um, allows her to realize how much she's capable of. And she crosses so many lines at such a young age, as they all do, that then I think when she returns, when they're saved what stays with her is this like idea that there really are no rules for her. She doesn't have to abide by the normal societal standards. We get to see you team up with another 90s iconic child star, Elijah Wood, another icon of my youth. He plays Walter, who is similarly chipper yet unsettling and who might be Misty's perfect foil. What is your deal? Elaborate? Um, I mean, how can you just be here? Do you not have a job? Oh, no. I haven't had a job in years. I'm a millionaire. Well, a multi-millionaire, technically. <laughs> no, you're not. Remember that scaffolding company who got sued a few years back when their beams came loose and caused a torrent of bricks to hit that poor guy who was walking under it? Well, he had to have a metal plate put in his head and settled in court for $6 million. Yeah, the whole thing's on YouTube. Even the experts don't know how I survived. You want to see? 
You two actually worked together all those years ago in the ice storm in 1997. Mm-hmm. Is there a different dimension to working with somebody that you you know have known for a long time? I guess so. I mean, at first <laughs> when I heard, I was like, oh, I love Elijah. You know, we worked together on the ice storm and then we run into each other at random things. But then, of course, I thought, ooh, what was I like when I was 15? <laughs> you know, sort of like, hmm. Fair, um, fair it turns enough. out it, I was fine. We were fine. So it was great. Moving on from Yellow Jacket slightly, you also have a role on the hit Netflix series Wednesday, which, of course, is based off the iconic Adams Family character. I think a lot of people know you from that. You played that role in films in 1991 and 93. And I'm curious, Christina, what is it like for you to sort of see this second coming or revival of that character, you know, particularly one that is attached to a role that you played, you know, as a as a very young person? Yeah, you know, I have a lot of strong feelings about Wednesday and having played her, I feel very sentimental about it. Playing that character really shaped my career in many ways. And uh, so I feel very attached to that. But having said that, you know, with Wednesday, the Netflix series, it is a new iteration of the character. So it it's, you know, it's Jenna's Wednesday and it's Tim's Wednesday. And so I was so thrilled and touch to be asked to be a part of it. But at the same time, it feels very much like it's two separate performances, really. And also, the, you know, my Wednesday was a, a little girl. There are real differences. But at the same time, like, I, I love the idea that a new generation has this Wednesday as a role model, because I think Wednesday is a really great role model for kids and for everybody, really. This idea of knowing who you are, being yourself, uh, not changing because of any kind of pressures. And I, I think I think that's really powerful. Finally, the Yellow Jackets finale is just weeks away. Uh, are there any hints you can give us about what to expect for Misty and the rest of the team? I mean, it, I just think it, it's devastating. It's a really shocking, devastating season finale. All right. Well, On that note, thank you so much. That was Christina Ricci. She plays Misty Quigley on Yellow Jackets. The second season is now airing weekly on Showtime. Christina Ricci, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. 